So I'm going to start this one not so much with a caveat, but with a petition. And instead of trying to paraphrase or pare down or highlight the significant points and draw them together in a cohesive statement, I'm simply going to let the petition that I wish to make speak for itself. It's short enough. So in 1523, a dude named Thomas More was chosen to be Speaker of the House of Commons of England's Parliament. So Parliament being what is now a legislative, but then actually a little bit more of an advisory body to the government of England, which would have been the crown. And the House of Commons being that place where the common citizen, or in other words, not of landed nobility or titled, would have come together to participate in the advisement of the crown on how the country would deal with various matters. So this guy, Thomas More, was very hesitant to accept the post of speaker, which was essentially the leader of the house, and he asked King Henry VIII to release him from the duty. Now, this is not general timidity or shyness or even humility. Oh, I'm not worthy in a Wayne's World style. The king refused his request, and accepting the position, Moore made a second request to the king, a request for free speech. And in the course of this petition, we'll see what free speech actually is, more than just, I get to say what I want and you can't do anything about it. And I trust as we continue, you'll understand why I'm making this petition to you, given the subject matter which I wish to discuss. So, starting off. My other humble request, most excellent prince, is this. Of your commoners here assembled by your high command for your parliament, a great number have been, in accord with the customary procedure, appointed in the House of Commons to treat and advise on the common affairs among themselves, as a separate group. And, most dear liege lord, in accord with your prudent advice, communicated everywhere by your honorable commands, due diligence has been exercised in sending up to your highness's court of parliament the most discreet persons out of every area who were deemed worthy of this office. Hence, there can be no doubt that the assembly is a very substantial one, of very wise and politic persons. And yet, most victorious prince, among so many wise men, not all will be equally wise. And of those who are equally wise, not all will be equally well-spoken. And often it happens that just as a lot of foolishness is uttered with ornate and polished speech, so too many coarse and rough-spoken men see deep inside and give very substantial counsel. Also, in matters of great importance, the mind is often so preoccupied with the subject matter that one thinks more about what to say than how to say it. For which reason the wisest and best-spoken men in the country may now and then, when his mind is engrossed in the subject matter, say something in such a way that he will later wish he had said it differently. And yet he had no less good will when he spoke it than he has now when he would so gladly change it. And, therefore, most gracious sovereign, Considering that in your high court of parliament nothing is discussed but weighty and important matters concerning your realm and your own royal estate, many of your discreet commoners will be hindered from giving their advice and counsel to the great hindrance of the common affairs 
unless every one of your commoners is utterly discharged of all doubt and fear as to how anything that he happens to say may happen to be taken by your highness. And although your and although your well-known and proven kindness gives every man hope, yet such is the seriousness of the matter, such is the reverent dread that the timorous hearts of your natural-born subjects conceive towards your high majesty, our most illustrious king and sovereign, that they cannot be satisfied on this point unless you, in your gracious bounty, remove the misgivings of their timorous minds and animate and encourage and reassure them. It may therefore please your most abundant grace, our most benign and godly king, to give to all your commoners here assembled your most gracious permission and allowance for every man freely, without fear of your dreaded displeasure, to speak his conscience and boldly declare his advice concerning everything that comes up among us. Whatever any man may happen to say, may it please your noble majesty in your inestimable goodness to take it all with no offense, interpreting every man's words, however badly they may be phrased, to proceed nonetheless from a good zeal to the profit of your realm and honor of your royal person the prosperous condition and preservation of which, most excellent sovereign, is the thing which we all, your most humble and loving subjects, according to that most binding duty of our heartfelt allegiance, most highly desire and pray for. So in other words, I'm going to touch on a matter of weighty importance, one that is common to we all as Christians and is significant and needs to be treated. And I pray that you understand that I am such a discreet person. And that what I wish to say is to the benefit of all. And so I beg your gracious permission and allowance that I may speak freely, without fear of your dreaded displeasure, to speak my conscience and boldly declare what I perceive to be good and necessary concerning a matter of importance to the church. That you consider my words, regardless of how ill you may see them spoken, and therefore, with grace and love, understand my true meaning. Alright, so, as you might have gathered from the start of this particular episode installment. I don't like calling these episodes. This is a matter of personal significance. Not just for me, but, well, not really for me, do I mean personal, but personal is that we live in a world, in a time, an age, in which everything is understood in sort of an existentially personal matter. And so what I'm basically going to be talking about is identity. But in order to do that, I want to go all the way back And see what I think God was showing me regarding what God is doing with the human race from the beginning. So in 2 Corinthians, okay, so basic aspect of the gospel, we see that God is reckoning, reconciling humanity to himself. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18, or 5, 16, really the whole chapter. And so Paul talks about being given this ministry of reconciliation. So what is reconciliation? It is a return to right standing. 
You know, I punched somebody in the face, I've wronged him, there's a rift. In order to be reconciled, something is done to where I am now put in what is a proper relationship, what the relationship ought to be with the person I punched in the face and wronged. Now, there's an interesting way that I think in Scripture, that I'm confident in Scripture, God is actually doing this. Yes, obviously it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not negating the gospel. But there's something interesting that I saw. How is God bringing about reconciliation? He's bringing it about through recreation. This is where I'm going off script a little bit. Well, no, I'm not. This is a good transition. Going back to the statement that everything is so personal. God is not simply recreating each one of us. He is recreating humanity. He is recreating the human being. And that is how he brings about reconciliation of the human being to himself and every particular human being within that. So what happens? God has the garden. We got man going along. He's fine. Man sins. He's not fine. Goes out garden, sins a lot. Only one guy follows after God. He gets taken up into heaven. Everybody else sucks at life. And it gets so bad. And so God's like, that's it. I wash my hands, wash the world, wash it all. But one man. Interestingly, Noah proves to be a kind of second Adam. Because it's in Noah that we see God's first attempt, not attempt, but God's first illustration at uh, recreation. So with Noah, we have one bloodline, which is supposed to be dedicated to God. One actual ethnic bloodline. The only one that exists. Because everyone else has been wiped out in the flood. They're the only human beings left on the planet and are called to live as human beings ought to live in right relationship to God. And in this new Eden of sorts, a world washed clean, things don't go well. Human beings do what human beings would, by nature, do, which is essentially assert themselves, functioning in a kind of usurped autonomy, which was never theirs to have. And that takes us to Babel. Now, I'm planning on another installment on Babel specifically, but what's interesting in Babel is... This idea of the glory of man, we see the stark, simple, and undeniable nature of sin. Man, the human being, and yes, every human being in particular, functioning in such a way, living in this world as he sees fit to the honor and glory of himself. That is not caricatured pride. Wait for the later installment. I'll elaborate. And what's God's response to Babel? Interestingly enough, the re-creation of man. God, quote-unquote, destroys the single human race and scatters human beings across the world in a series of other races, hence the other languages. Again, more on that to come. But it's within this scattering. God said he wouldn't completely wipe everything out, so he does this instead. But he still goes back to the beginning, the recreation of man. Remembering the covenant with Noah, 
God leaves the wicked, the ungodly be, he leaves them be, and picks out one man who, like Noah, sorry, I keep checking this to see that it's recording because the last time I did this, it didn't. He picks out one man who, like Noah, would be the sire of a recreated humanity, a pure, as it were, human race, or a race that is purely human. Not that the others are subhuman, but what I mean by this is a race of men functioning as the race of men was meant to function. Properly oriented and functioning human beings. Relating to God first, and therefore to itself, the human being to itself, and to the world around him, according to how God originally intended. This is the race with whom God chose to uh, to maintain contact and communication in accordance with his will. See Deuteronomy 12, 1 Samuel 8. And this is the entire concept of repentance. Sorry if that seems like a bit of a non sequitur, but this idea of living according to God. That is what the Israelite race was meant to do in contrast to every other race around them. And so in a way, the nation of Israel gives us something tangible by which to understand what God desires and intends to bring about. The recreation of the human being and the human race, qua human being and human race. The human being is to be, is to live accurately as a reflection and image of God. And this is the reality with which Peter is confronted in his encounter with Cornelius. This entire thing was catalyzed by my considerations of Book of Acts, chapter 10, where Cornelius, a Roman, sends forth for Paul, and Paul has some visions, it's like, I can't go, Cornelius is Roman, I'm racist, can't go. God says, don't call common what I've called clean, so Paul, uh, Peter goes, and, you know, all that. So, in light of Acts 10, the church is to be the fulfillment of that of which the ethnic bloodline of Israel is the illustrative archetype or prototype, the recreation of the human being at his existential core. Thus, Peter later says of the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, note, race, nation, people, these are ethnic, genetic terms. But the church is made up of many races, many nations, many people. Pause, fun fact, nation, coming from nascor, which is a Latin deponent verb, which means to be born. Same root as nativity, natal, so the nation of Israel, the Cherokee nation, these are ethnic bloodlines. Peter hits this interesting fact, too. How can we be one people? We're obviously many people. He admonishes the church, and I do think admonishes the right word here, that once they were not a people. Well, obviously, how could they be? Belonging, as it were, to so many other peoples, nations, races. But now they are God's people. God's single ethnos. Thus, Paul admonishes the Colossians to put on the new man. I like the ESV. It's what I use. It says the new self. That's not helpful. The Greek is anthropos. The Latin is homines, human being. 
which is being renewed according to the image of its creator. This renewal of the fundamentally human makes it impossible for the ethnic distinctions of Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian to have any existential value or validity. Such distinctions, which... I'm going to throw out this teaser, mythologically. (laughs) These distinctions, which arise from Babel, are secondary. They're rendered moot, since the new man is the new creation in Christ, who was himself the perfectly human image of God the Father. It's not, I am a new Greek. It's not, I am a new American. It's not, I'm a new white guy. It's, I am a new man. It's more fundamental than that. Thus, the church is God's people, the restored single ethnos of humanity. And in this lies each Christian's identity. Fun fact, identity is derived from a Latin adjective, which means same. So, to identify with some group or with some attribute is to acknowledge an inalterable, immutable, existential sameness. Thus, people identify with their ethnicities, their genders, their orientations, or contemporary concepts of nationality or citizenship. The problem is that all of these are by nature either secondary or just flat out purely fabricated. And to establish an identity based upon them is to usurp the only legitimate identity, which is the human, rightly understood. Furthermore, any attempt to label two identities is impossible. Sorry, bad handwriting. Any attempt to blend two identities is impossible. This is the whole point of Paul's letter to the Philippians. The people in Philippi were so wedded to their identity, sameness, as the concept of Roman citizens, and so had trouble functioning as the church. They proved that a hyphenated identity is impossible, and that an attempt to make a hyphenated Christian renders one incapable of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ himself said. See Luke 14, 27, but really verses 25 through 33. What Jesus says there is, unless you hate father, mother, brother, sister, that's family, not ethnic. Same difference. Family larger family even, is identity to Jesus' audience. And so he who does not reject as existentially valid any competing claim to who he thinks he is, is just not logistically capable of genuinely or fully, or at all, maturing in Christ as the new person. For the accurately assessed... uh, Yeah, there it is. The accurately assessed cost of discipleship is everything a person has or everything he thinks that he is. But we won't let go of the plow with the other hand. Too many Christians keep themselves under the curse of Babel, asserting to be a black Christian, a gay Christian, a conservative Christian, a feminist Christian. We so actively fail To become the people of God, of which Peter speaks, instead using hyphenated, blended identities to create partiality, to heap up records of wrongs, to sow malice, to claim pridefully that someone else, some other Christian, is a fundamentally different form from me. 
that he is incapable of actually understanding me, of communing with me, of sympathizing with me, of being in relationship with me. Thus, the only logical conclusion is I would actually reject Jesus as well as my perfect high priest because I refuse identification or even the possibility of actual sameness with a heterosexual Palestinian man of a certain age, certain socioeconomic status, certain education level. Such a person isn't capable of sympathizing with me in every way. Thus, by my action, by my actual worldview, I prove God a liar. And my hyphenated identity compels me to reject his word and therefore incapable of being his disciple. Yes, that's the direction I went. Because if you actually read and consider the letter to the Hebrews and everything I just referenced, that's the logical conclusion of hyphenated identity. Especially the way that we practice it nowadays. So for those of you who take the name of God, do not do so in vain. Own it. Identify with it and heed the admonition of Paul to your Philippian brethren to submit the rest to God and he'll help you. He'll help you understand and deal with whatever else you may think you are and more fully mature into him who is your head. All right, that's all I have scripted. What I really do want to say, though, I guess to beat the dead horse is I know this is hard but that's also kind of the point as I sit and reflect on the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christianity and how God actually made the world Christianity is the only call it what you will worldview philosophical system religious tradition that actually strips everything else away and leaves the human being with the breathing room to deal with life in this world as it actually is. But accompanying with that means the human being has to step up and deal with life in this world as it is. Jesus looks at the starving and says, man does not live by bread alone. He looks at the dying and says, you will have life abundant. He looks at the poor and he says, in me are the riches of God's grace. And these aren't necessarily just to make us feel better. It points to something. As Paul said, I know him whom I have trusted. And even though I face the executioner's block, I do not fear those who may kill the body, but him who may kill the body and the soul. And I know that my soul has life, fullness of life, because I know who I am. In Christ, I am a new creation. I have put on the new man, human being, more core and fundamental than anything else. So I encourage you, let it go. As a starting point, whatever your hyphen is, and I have to say again, a starting point, because I know it's not easy. Put yourself in the position of the woman in John chapter 8. She was told, go now and sin no more. And that's where the narrative stops. But if she's a real person, that was not easy. All of us, at so many times, are probably in her position. Let go of the hyphen. Put it down. Step out onto the water and trust that God is building his church, his people, his race. And that the others who are included in it 
are genuinely and desire to be your brothers and sisters at the fundamentally human level. Loving you, admonishing you, exhorting you, praising you, celebrating you for nothing else other than the new creation, the new man that you are. All right. Love you. Deuces.